Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Well, it is the first program in January of 2024. And naturally, we're going to look forward to what's going to take place. Now, Rick, we don't. We don't prophesy. We don't predict. We just examine current events and understanding, try to see what possibly could be the major stories of 2024. Well, that's right, Jimmy. And we're going to talk to our broadcast partners, Ken Timmerman, Dave Dolan, Winky Madad, and R.C. Murrow. These gentlemen are going to look at current events. They're going to give us an update on what's going on. But we're going to take a look forward to what we think may happen in 2024. There's so much. And now when I listen to last year's program that we did in January, Rick, it's amazing. I remember Dr. Richard Schmidt said anti-Semitism would rear its ugly head. And can you imagine who would have ever thought that what took place October 7th would unite the world against the little tiny state of Israel? Well, we're going to talk about that today on our program. We're going to look forward and understand when we take a look at the book, why Bible prophecy is so very important in our lives. Well, let's get started, Rick, with our first broadcast partner, Ken Timmerman, who's standing by. Well, that's right, Jimmy. I have Ken Timmerman with us. He's an author, an analyst, and our go-to when we look at the world from a geopolitical perspective. He has a website. If you'd like to find out more about him, if you'd like to sign up for his newsletter or the books that he's written, you could go to KenTimmerman.com. Ken, thank you for joining us for this first program of 2024. Well, that's right, uh, Rick. Happy New Year to you, uh, to uh, your family, and to all of our listeners. Well, we appreciate you being with us, and we're going to look ahead to what we think might happen in 2024. But before we do that, there's a few news items that I'd like to get your insight on. And the first one was this attack, this terrorist attack inside of Iran. Can you tell us about that? Well, 2024 is going to be a momentous year, and we're going to get into that in some detail later on. But this is one of those events. I think we're going to have more events like this, a major terror attack killing over 100 people and wounding close to 300 in Iran at the celebration or the commemoration, if you wish, of the fourth anniversary of the killing of Qasem Soleimani, Iran's top terrorist. Now, you got to ask yourself, Rick, how many innocent people are going to show up to commemorate Qasem Soleimani, Iran's chief terrorist. I happen to think not an awful lot. I happen to think it's going to be mainly family members, okay, perhaps innocent family members, but especially Iranian Revolutionary Guards officers are going to be coming up. And it just reminded me this attack, which is probably carried out by ISIS-K, ISIS Khorasan, the ISIS affiliate that's in Pakistan today and, and really does not particularly like Shia Muslims, such as those in Iran. I was reminded of Mia Shem, the Israeli hostage, this 21-year-old girl who was released after 50 days. And, and over the past week or so, she's been talking to Israeli television and telling them about her captivity there with a family in Gaza who just treated her horribly. She said, I lived in hell. There are no innocent civilians in Gaza. Innocent civilians don't exist. So I look at this attack in Iran as part of the bigger picture of what's going to happen in 2024. We're going to have wars, rumors of wars in Iran, in Gaza, certainly in Syria, elsewhere in the Middle East. 2024 began literally with a bang. 
One more story I'd like to get your thoughts on before we move on to 2024 and a look at 2024 is the fact that Russia is using North Korean missiles. Well, this is a, a relatively recent development, Rick, and, and we've seen that the Russians have turned to both Iran and North Korea for missiles, for artillery munitions, perhaps even artillery pieces from North Korea. And to me, this just shows the limitations of Russia's military production infrastructure. They lost a lot of that, by the way, when they lost Ukraine in 1992, when Ukraine was split off as a sovereign nation out of the Soviet Union. And it looks like they just have not built it back up. They don't have these massive, massive production facilities they had during the Cold War. And so they're turning to basket case North Korea and to the Iranians. Well, Ken, let's go ahead and start taking that look at 2024 like that we had talked about. And if we uh, look at the situation around the world, we have been looking at conflicts. Of course, we came into 2023 with the Russia-Ukraine conflict already going during 2023. uh, October 7th happened in the Israel-Hamas war. And it seems like there are these escalations in the hotspots around the world. Many people are wondering, are these going to escalate maybe to an even wider conflict, possibly even World War III? Well, I don't think we're going there. I think you're going to see an escalation in the Ukraine war, but it's not going to lead to World War III. And here's why. The Russians are really doing their very best to deter NATO. Putin is saying outrageous things. He's trying to intimidate NATO. He's trying to get us to back off from aid to Ukraine. I think there've also been some pretty interesting indicators of Russia's involvement with Hamas and that they may or may not have known about the Hamas attack, but they certainly are happy to see that it's happened because that has taken Ukraine off the front pages here in the United States and it's taken Ukraine aid off the front pages as well. And that's good news for Putin. So I think Putin is really trying to solidify his situation in Ukraine. I think he's going to continue these recent attacks that we talked about last week on Kiev and other major cities. And uh, the goal is going to be to bring Zelensky or perhaps his successor to the negotiating table to prevent this from turning into World War III. Well, let's move on to another subject, and this is one that we've also followed on this program, and that is immigration. And there is a situation in Europe, in the United States, there has been a lot of immigration of refugees, specifically from Middle Eastern countries, specifically uh, Islamic in nature, that have been changing the makeup of the host countries that they go to. This is something that we have talked about before we think is going to be a continuing story. How do you think it's going to affect us in 2024? Well, the Europeans are worried, and they're worried by this, you know, pretty massive uptick in uh, immigration from the third world, from Africa, from the Middle East. You know, they had 264,000 arrivals in 2023. Now, that sounds like a lot, Rick, but the Biden administration has let in that many people across our southern border in just one month in December of 2023. So put into perspective, it's a drop in the bucket. It is literally one a tenth or one twelfth of what we have taken in. Italy, Spain, and Greece have been the most effective. They've each taken in uh, well over 50,000 people from those countries. And that has led the Italian prime minister, conservative Georgia Maloney, to uh, look for other options. She and the British Prime Minister, uh, Rashi Sunak, have been talking about sending these people back to their home countries or finding, uh, you know, getting 
other European countries to be a little bit more forthcoming to take them, uh, to welcome them in their countries. And Maloney said in particular, Italy is not going to become, quote, Europe's refugee camp. She's fed up. She doesn't want to get these refugees dumped into Italy, and they are looking for other solutions. So I think they're going to tighten their borders in 24. Let's move on to another subject that we also talk about on this program regularly, and that is China. If you talk about China, they have an ambition to be the world's leading military, the world's leading economy, the world's leading superpower, and that is continuing. We are China watchers on this program. We are seeing what they're doing. What do you see for China in 2024? But what we need to keep our eye on is the Chinese economy. There has been a pretty significant downturn over the past year, uh, and the Chinese Communist Party cannot survive if they do not provide growth to the Chinese people. Uh, So I've got my eyes on the Chinese economy. It's not good news for the CCP. Now, will it prevent them from attacking Taiwan? Uh, We'll have to see. I tend to suspect, Rick, that the economy is going to be a significant drive on their military ambitions and that, in fact, this could well prevent them from attacking Taiwan in 2024. Well, my final question for you, and this is something that we're definitely going to talk about quite a bit in 2024, is the U.S. presidential election. I'd like to get your take on this upcoming election from two different angles. The first angle is politicians act differently when they are running for office. How is the U.S. presidential election going to affect the worldwide geopolitical situation? And then secondly, what's at stake in this election as we choose essentially the next leader of the free world, the next president of the United States? Well, the the one thing that's going to be very different from some previous elections is that we know who the candidates are. They've both been president. We know how they have acted as president. And so I don't think you're going to have a lot of unknowns going into the future. Who is Joe Biden? Joe Biden is somebody who does not believe in U.S. leadership. He's like Barack Obama. He believes we should lead from behind. We have been weakened significantly in the three years since Biden has been president. We pulled out from the Middle East. We are less influential in the Middle East. And we got sucked into this absurd conflict with Russia in a proxy war in Ukraine, which really makes no sense to our national security. Uh, So you contrast that with Donald Trump, also president for four years. We saw how he behaved. Tensions around the world actually went down. There were no wars around the world during Trump's four years in office. Russia did not invade Ukraine. Uh, Hamas was kept pretty much on a leash. The Iranians were terrified that Trump was going to retaliate against them if they did uh, too many bad things. And in fact, he did. He killed Qasem Soleimani in January of 2020, and the Iranians never really struck back. So I think if Trump wins the election, you're going to see greater stability around the world, but you're going to see riots inside the United States because the left will not tolerate a second Trump presidency. That's going to be the real challenge should Donald Trump win the presidency. Well, it certainly is going to be interesting. We'll be here and you'll be here to walk us through this as we go through 2024. We appreciate you doing that every week as you do. Again, for those that are listening right now, if you'd like to find out more about Ken, see what he's written, sign up for his newsletter, go to KenTimmerman.com. Ken, Happy New Year and thank you again for all that you do for this program. Thanks so much, Rick. It's a pleasure to be with you and I'm looking forward to 2024 with uh, fingers crossed and on the edge of my seat. Ken, as always, thank you very much. And it's a good thing that we've got a manual to go by 
to help us to navigate these end times, and that is God's Word. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, David Dolan with our Middle East News Update, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Iran vows revenge after the biggest attack on its soil since 1979. The Islamic State claimed the twin explosions that killed at least 95 people on Wednesday and left over 200 wounded. The explosions threatened to escalate tensions in the Middle East, a region already on edge due to the Israel-Hamas war. Calls to Heart for Iran's 24-7 ministry line reflect nationwide anxiety. Heart for Iran's Nazanin Baghestani says, They always want prayer for peace. And that's mostly what our calls are. When they ask for prayer and we say, do you know the source of peace? We always preach the gospel. We always tell them the good news. And praise God, so many believe in Christ because there's no other hope. And when it comes to something like addiction recovery, is the God factor really that important? Brandon Bauer with The Lighthouse says a biblical approach to addiction is crucial because without it, there's no way to address the deeper spiritual roots of idolatry. We've put fancy names on idolatry like addiction, but things like addiction just provide a temporal satisfaction. And if we're worshiping the creation or something temporal rather than the creator, our lives are going to be in chaos. Find your place in the story at missionnews.org. If you know someone who's struggling with a life-altering addiction, we'd love to talk with them. We may have room in our program for them. But like a deeper response, I want every believer that's listening to turn to Scripture to help guide them. Because if Scripture isn't guiding us, something else is. Thanks for listening to Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. We're listener-supported by people just like you. So by giving to Mission Network News, you enable us to keep the stories of God's kingdom coming. And together, the Great Commission happens. Look for links at missionnews.org. That's missionnews.org. I'm Ruth Kramer. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. This segment of our program is what we like to call the Middle East News Update. We focus on news coming out of the Middle East in general, but Israel in particular. And doing this for the first time in 2024 is our good friend and journalist, Dave Dolan. Dave, thank you so much for being with us today. Glad to be back for the new year, Rick. Well, David, lots going on, including a very important speech from the leader of Hezbollah. Could you give us an update on the situation in Israel right now, both on the southern front and the northern front? Well, Rick, of course, fighting does continue in the Gaza Strip, especially in the south, Khan Yunus, where Israel believes these senior Hamas leaders and Islamic Jihad, their partners are hiding in tunnels. Uh, there were over 100 strikes on uh, Friday alone. But it's uh, not as intense. The ground fighting in the north in particular is pretty much over. Israel said it uncovered a series of tunnels underneath the Gaza City's largest hotel right on the beach. On Friday, they announced that. Uh, But the main action is further north, as you indicated, with the speech by Hezbollah's leader Nasrallah, the second this week, and that's the first time in years, that he's done that, in which he basically said that Israel is going to be hit and hit hard uh, because of the assassination on Tuesday attributed to Israel, an Israeli drone, of the deputy commander of Hamas. This is the second senior leader in the whole organization, Rick, very high up. It was an audacious attack. He said this was upon our capital city. 
came out of the blue. He said, we can't allow that to happen. He said, therefore, we've been responding and will respond um, because all Lebanon is exposed. If there's no response, he said, it will not go unanswered or unpunished. He also talked about the U.S. drone strike in Baghdad, said that gives an opportunity for the pro-Iranian forces there to kick the U.S. out of the country. And he praised the Houthi rebels that have been, of course, attacking shipping in the Red Sea. And overall, Rick, 15% of oil and 15% of other goods pass through the Suez Canal. So 30% of world trade passes through the Suez Canal, and now it's basically shut down. But uh, the speech that he gave came as the IDF chief of staff uh, visited the north, along with the defense minister, Israel's defense minister, Gallant. And they again reiterated that they want to see a diplomatic solution to the problems in South Lebanon, i.e. that Hezbollah is uh, operating right along the border. And by the way, Nasrallah said they've carried out over 670 operations, as he called it, 494 direct attacks. He said we've been doing six or seven a day, but again, he indicated that they will step that up. And a a Lebanese uh, newspaper associated with Hezbollah uh, quoted a senior journalist saying that they are planning deep strikes into Israel. Now, again, this has not happened so far, and obviously Israelis are hoping it won't happen, Rick, but we all know that Hezbollah's rocket force is substantially larger than Hamas's and uh, that Iran is operating with them in parts of Lebanon. So a lot of tensions there, but the diplomatic moves continue. The foreign minister of the European Union arrived in Israel on Friday. The German foreign minister is coming on Sunday, the French on Monday. Meanwhile, Anthony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, will be in the region. He flew in, and he's meeting with leaders of various countries. And, of course, Gaza will be on the top of the list. But he also is trying to prevent the uh, war from um, escalating significantly in the north. The plan is for Hezbollah to be pushed back 15 miles or so from the northern Israeli border, like they were supposed to B is as part of the UN uh, 2006 uh, brokered uh, end of that war, but they are operating all over the place. They have a larger tunnel network than than Hamas had in Gaza. It's believed they have forces everywhere, and like Hamas, they often station their forces in civilian neighborhoods and areas and mosques and that sort of thing. So Israel doesn't want a full war. Clearly, they hope this diplomatic path will succeed, but Nasrallah said, one more quote, that no, we're not going to participate in any sort of negotiations or any sort of movement of our forces until the war in Gaza is completely ended and Israeli forces are out of Gaza entirely. So it doesn't look like diplomacy is going to work right now, Rick. It looks like we may see that response that Nasrallah and other Hamas leaders have been promising is coming. And uh, the, the IDF is as prepared as possible for that. Well, David, we've been talking about the outlook for Israel in 2024. Well, this situation at the northern border with Hezbollah, however that resolves itself out, is crucial as to how Israel's 2024 is going to go, isn't it? It is, Rick. And again, this isn't really a war between Israel and Hamas. Yes, it is, but that's an element of it. Or even Israel and Hezbollah, that's an element of it. And of course, the Houthis, etc. 
It's a war between Israel and Iran. Iran is behind all of this. Over 100 attacks on U.S. forces since October 17th in Iraq and Syria. Threats from Tehran this week that uh, claiming that Israel was behind the deaths of uh, dozens of civilians at the grave of Soleimani, uh, the anniversary of his assassination by U.S. forces in Baghdad, actually. Uh, Iran is behind all of that, and it depends on what they want. But I think that they, the signs are growing, that they have come to the point where they're ready to unleash whatever they can, even though they know it may mean a full war between them and Israel, but again, if their proxies are still able to fight on the other fronts, maybe not from Gaza, but on the other fronts, and certainly Hezbollah could wage war for many months. They've got a very powerful force, and most of their rockets are underground and hidden, and Israel would, would not be going in on the ground like they did in Gaza. They certainly don't want to, at least. So um, warfare looks like it's in the picture, and of course, we know prophetically that Israel will face wars in its last days. That's detailed in the Psalms and elsewhere. But I often talk about Psalm 102, Rick, that uh, says that when the Lord's favor returns to Zion and Jerusalem, and we can say that happened in 1948 and reinforced in 1967, that the same generation in Hebrew, it says in Psalm 102, verse um, 18, will be alive to see the Lord's return and the full restoration of Israel. So a generation in the Bible is maybe 40 years is what we often think of. It could be 70. But in the case of the children of Israel in Egypt, it was 105 years was considered one generation. All that to say Israel's 75 years old, and I think these things are prophetically coming to a head. And, of course, we see more and more evidence on the ground the growing alliance between Iran and Russia, Turkey turning again away from Israel, all of these prophesied to be anti-Israel forces in the last days, China also turning more and more away from Israel and supporting Iran and North Korea threatening to open up a front there, and of course China going into Taiwan. So I hate to say it, but I think this is going to be a year of warfare and upheaval, probably not seen since World War II. Well, David, it certainly does seem like current events are setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. Well, let's end this interview on a slightly different note than we normally do. I know you and I talked before the program, and you are celebrating an anniversary. David, could you tell our listeners about that? Yes, Rick. Uh, Fifty years ago on this past Thursday, I gave my life to the Lord. I was all alone in a rented trailer by the river in the town I lived in. The full moon was out. It was very, very cold. And my brother had witnessed to me a few weeks earlier. He came home from college, and he'd become a believer uh, during the first half of that year, testified. And he gave me a subtle gift, a Bible, (laughs) to look at. I wasn't interested at the time. I put it behind my chair. But that night, I won't go into all the details. It would take far too long. But uh, the Lord really fell upon me, and I knew he was calling me to himself. And I surrendered my life to him. And, Rick, the first thing that I felt Uh, as I was praying the next day, was that I would be going to Israel. And I went and told my friends, several of my friends that, and one went and bought me a cactus plant. He said, you better get used to desert plants if you're going to Israel. Well, of course, it was not for six years. It was only six years later that I went there, but uh, I ended up 33 years there. And, of course, I still follow events closely and have many friends there. But that was the best thing I ever did in my life, surrendering to him. 
And I want to just say to anybody who just happened to be tuning their radio and maybe they don't believe in Jesus, Yeshua the Messiah, maybe they don't know much about him or what he's done, but look into it because everything that's happening is screaming now that the end of this age is coming. All the prophets spoke about it in the Old and New Testaments, the Hebrew Bible, New Testament, and uh, we see that coming. And if you don't know the Lord, you're not going to be with the Lord. That's what the Bible says. And you want to be with the Lord because the one that spoke the most about hell was actually Jesus himself. So it's a real place, and you don't want to be there. You want to be with him in eternity. So I'd urge anyone to surrender as well. But 50 years with the Lord, and I hope to keep walking with him until he either catches us away or catches me away personally or whatever. But uh, I love him and uh, the best thing I ever did. Well, David, as always, thank you for the report, but even more so today, thank you for the testimony. Thank you so much for all that you do for our listeners, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. God bless you, Rick. I'm glad to do it, and let's hope the year goes well. We're going to take a break right now, but we'll be back with more of Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Pakistan and Afghanistan are playing hot potato with over a million Afghans. Two months ago, Pakistan began deporting undocumented Afghan foreigners. But even those born in Pakistan or with special immigration visas are also caught in the mix. So far, 450,000 Afghans living in Pakistan have been stranded on the Afghanistan border. FMI's Nehemiah says partners are supporting Afghan churches from Pakistan who now have to travel to Afghanistan, a nation run by the Taliban. Pray courage for displaced Afghan believers. And the American dream drives many in the United States to rise above the station they were born into. A similar phenomenon is underway in Honduras, where Victorious Life helps people find spiritual and economic freedom in Christ. Victorious Life and Farms International are teaming up to do more for the Lord in Honduras. Help from believers like you makes that work possible. The details at missionnews.org. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we are examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. And remember, as we are focusing on events in 2024, we're using God's word to help us to understand the events we should focus on. Well, let's continue looking at the events that we think are going to be important in 2024 with our good friend, Winky Madad in the land of Israel. Well, that's right, Jimmy. We have Winky Madad with us. He's the former mayor of Shiloh. He's a man who lives with his wife in Judea and Samaria there, what we call Judea and Samaria. Maybe the mainstream media might call the West Bank, but we call it Judea and Samaria because that's what the Bible calls it. He joins us often to let us know what is going on in Israel. We cover history, politics, all those sorts of things. Winky, thank you for being with us today. A pleasure once again for the new year. Winky gave me a caveat before we started this, because last week we talked about 2023, and we looked back at what had happened, and I told him this week we want to look ahead to 2024, and he said, well, he's neither 
the prophet nor the son of a prophet. So he is not going to give us his prophetic, but he's going to give us his wisdom, his insight into what is going to take place, what he thinks might happen in 2024. So we'll go ahead and get started. Well, Winky, as we look at it, our top story last year, of course, was October 7th and what happened, the result of it, the continuing war in Gaza. Well, as we look at that situation now, however many three months into this, Israel going into Gaza, they have achieved most of their major military objectives. But as this is winding down, Winky, have they achieved all the objectives they need well, of course not. We have not done about probably 50% of what we should be doing and need to be doing. And I, I, I'd like to make it clear to everybody because anybody who's paying attention is getting a lot of flack over what Israel is doing and they should understand what's happening. Since 2006, Hamas has been in control of Gaza. They have fortified the place and they have been engaged in terror attacks of all sorts, underground, above ground, in the skies. And it's obvious that there will not be peace for Israel. Uh, And now we've seen this past couple of months that the missiles are reaching into Tel Aviv and other places, unless the Hamas capabilities are completely eliminated. That could be human capabilities. I'm talking about commanders and military experts that they have there. Uh, war material, uh, which is local, that means destroying workshops, uh, underground stores, and all other munitions being found. And it also means making sure that no more will there be smuggling, either through the sea or through the land, specifically Egypt and the tunnels on the South Gaza Strip. And this is a major effort that will probably take at least two to three months to uh, complete. Everybody talks about you cannot eliminate an ideology. We're not interested in eliminating an ideology. We're interested in making sure that whatever people think, and we've seen them thinking bad things and trying to do and doing bad things, that they won't be able to do that. So I think that's what we're going to see in the uh, first quarter or so of 2024, continuing the ground operations to eliminate the capabilities of Hamas to be a terror group. What is ahead? They're calling it the day after, which means the day after the the war ends there and they achieve their objectives. What is ahead for Gaza in the quote unquote day after? Well, as far as we know, uh, Mr. Netanyahu and most of his government want to make sure that Israel has full military security control over Gaza. Does that mean that Gaza is going to look like Judea and Samaria? I don't know. Does that mean that we could invite nations or a nation to come in and supervise? Don't forget that between 1948 and 1967, it was under Egyptian control. Uh, That's a possibility. We have a peace treaty with Egypt, a lot better than with the Palestinian Authority, which we're fighting every single day because they encourage either terror or incite and instigate terror, or they let Hamas and Islamic Jihad and other bodies organize and become uh, a danger to Israel. And so what I can prophesize or can see is that Mr. Netanyahu, as long as he is prime minister, and that's another issue, right, will try to make sure that neither the Palestinian Authority nor any other 
semi-independent authority be established in Gaza, but look for some sort of an, another arrangement. In the north, you have Hezbollah on your border there, and there was an assassination this past week of a Hamas official that was in Beirut, and many are thinking that Hezbollah might use that as a provocation to attack Israel. Nothing like that has happened yet. What is going on? Does Hezbollah want to join in a full-scale war with Israel? I do not think they want to at this moment in time. I think that they were caught by surprise by the Hamas attack to a, to a great extent. Maybe they had knowledge of its being planned, but not of its launch date on October 7th. And Israel's response has been fairly measured. It's been cross-border. No troops have uh, been engaged on the ground. It's been either tank fire or drone fire or jets that are bombing. Uh, but there's no cross-border effort by Israel. And I think the Hezbollah uh, is probably happy about that. Don't forget, as, as far as I know, they've lost close to 150 of their fighters in the past three months. I don't think that Lebanon really wants to get involved in this. We'll probably exert as much pressure as possible. Does that mean that Iran, acting erratically or irrationally, will force Hezbollah to do something in the coming months? It's a possibility. I don't think so, but uh, I'm going to go easy on this one because it's very difficult to gauge um, um, the thinking of these Shiite radicals who have done a lot of damage all around the world, from Argentina to other places, Iraq, etc. So uh, I'm just going to be wary on this and think it's at the worst, it could just continue basically as it is now. Well, very interesting. I asked you if Hezbollah wants a war, but I'm kind of wondering also, does Israel want a war? And I know they don't necessarily want a war, but it, you look at the situation in Gaza, and they were kind of content to allow the situation to go on in Gaza before October 7th, thinking that they could keep it under control, that they could contain it. But there are many communities that are right up there on the border with Hezbollah. Does Israel need to in order to establish a secure border and to have uh, security in the north, does Israel need a conflict with Hezbollah to move them back? Or or maybe maybe not a conflict, maybe negotiations. What do you think? Well, I would uh, vote for negotiations. And I think I've, I've seen an item in which uh, Hezbollah has begun moving some of its forward positions back. Uh, because, listen, we have, uh, I think, over 100,000 Israelis in the north and for those uh, who are listening to our program have been up to Metula or to Tzfat or to uh, some of the kibbutzim on the northwest uh, corner of Israel or to, all the way to Rosh Hashanah, uh, a lot of these kibbutzim and moshevim are empty. Metula is, is empty. Uh, Kiryat Shmona has been rocketed. Uh, so this, obviously the situation cannot continue. Hopefully, with any sort of resolution one way or the other uh, with the Gaza situation, Hezbollah will simply stop being a pestering force right now. They're using dangerous anti-tank rockets so uh, that uh, unfortunately some Israeli has been killed and, and troops have been wounded. And maybe with the end of the Hamas uh, situation, Hezbollah will go back to be just a threat rather than an active uh, engagement. 
Well, final question there on kind of Israel's military capacity and what they're going to be doing and, and with their enemies. If you look at their future with Iran, you talked a little bit about Iran already uh, and what they may or may not do against Israel. Their intentions towards Israel are clear when they talk. These Hamas and Hezbollah are Iranian proxies. Besides using these uh, proxies to attack Israel, do you see any direct conflict with Iran? Uh, how do you see that going? What do you think Israel's future with Iran is in 2024? Well, the major element of, uh, of to answer that would be what Israeli intelligence knows about nuclear capabilities. How far it's being developed? Are they continuing? Uh, are they on the edge? What the situation is? And that has nothing to do with Hezbollah or Hamas. They're on that program like by itself. That's a, that's another issue altogether. They may use uh, Hezbollah, Hamas, the Houthis in, in Yemen uh, to bother everybody, including international uh, shipping lanes in the Red Sea. But that's one element of Iran. The other one is a totally different story. It's not totally dependent on, on the first uh, set of uh, variants that we discussed just now. Uh, and and that I I don't know because I don't I I don't know, I don't have the intelligence I don't have the information I don't know how far their scientists are involved in their industry in, in subterranean laboratories are, are going ahead that could be a totally different disconnected ball game uh, and I and that one is simply up in the air right now for me. Let's start to talk about Israel internally and Israel politically. <laughs> As you know, and you've explained to us many times, very complex subject, very complex situation. Before October 7th, and the main story throughout the year was the judicial review and the protest and the end of democracy that one side said it was and the needed balance between powers that the other side said it, that it needed. And there was actually a Supreme Court ruling this week. So with these Supreme Court rulings, are we going to go back to the divide that was there beforehand? Is The war has somewhat brought the country or unified the country. But give us a status update. What is going on? What is taking place in Israeli politics, especially as it concerns the judicial review and the kind of the needed balance between the government, between the Supreme Court and the Knesset? Well, the simple answer is that the mood, as far as I can tell, and I try, as you know, to review uh, all sorts of social platforms and media, and uh, I could be slightly wrong, but not much, is that on the home front, the overwhelming feeling is unity, forget politics, put it aside, we have to go on ahead. And the longer that lasts, the longer that will last after the war is over. So that's a good thing. But if I'm following those people who are demonstrating and some of the politicians and former politicians, they have been beating the drums, if I can use the phrase, of uh, negativism, of criticism, and with this, as you mentioned, this latest uh, Supreme Court uh, decision, they're delighted and is again, at least in some areas, beginning to allow that negativity, if I can use the phrase, to arise once again and to sort of, I, I, it's maybe too strong, but to poison the atmosphere, to, to, to give the atmosphere one where you feel that you must shout at the other side and point out what he's doing wrong instead of finding out what everybody is doing right. So I am sure, if you want me to be a prophet, 
that as the war winds down, uh, which will probably be winding down another month and a half to two months, again, we will see the political front heating up, uh, unfortunately. Uh, and I don't know uh, what Mr. Netanyahu will do. He might simply put aside uh, until elections when they happen any of this issue and hopefully get a, a majority that would really seal his ability to make the uh, changes necessary. But that's as far as I'll go on that one, Rick. Well, that is certainly a complex situation. So, too, is the situation with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He came to power as head of the Likud party. He's been a longtime prime minister. He is a very polarizing figure in Israel, much like President Trump in the United States. You either love him or you hate him. He has a lot to navigate right now with the war and then this judicial review, maybe after the war. Can you tell us, first of all, how do you think Prime Minister Netanyahu has been doing handling the war? And then what are his prospects? for the future in 2024? Well, his leadership has been, has, has been uh, just shy of outstanding. He's made uh, proper policy decisions. He's let the army do what they were prepared to do before October 7th. L- let's not forget that the October 7th was a problem of the army more than anything else. Even if you could say that even Netanyahu had uh, held that the Hamas was deterred and that having Qatar bring in money would, would, would sort of keep them busy and, and, that, uh, and that was wrong, which was true, okay? But the fault of October 7th was a lack of simple intelligence, military intelligence, and the fact that the army, it was on a holiday and it just, everything began to break down because they managed to, uh, complicate the communication systems, and it took a good few hours for everybody to get together. So I'm not going to blame Netanyahu on that uh, specifically, but if the war is won in a, in a relatively uh, high fashion, I think Mr. Netanyahu would be back in the saddle, and it would be very difficult to uh, unseat him unless certain key members of the Likud party, his own party, uh, hook up with some of the opposition. That's a possibility. Israel is known for that in its political system. Uh, people leaving the ranks and moving over to other parties. So that would be probably what I'd like people to keep an eye on. Well, we certainly will continue to keep an eye on the military and the political. One final last question, and we ended our interview last week talking about this as well, and we talk about the Temple Mount, something we keep an eye on here in this situation. Of course, October 7th was initially by Hamas called the Al-Aqsa Flood because they said that they were doing the atrocities that they committed on that day to protect the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Islamic Mosque on the Temple Mount, to protect the Temple Mount area from the Jewish people. And so we look at that situation. As we go forward, we have documented on this program over the years a growing Jewish presence on the Temple Mount and kind of a resurgence among the Jewish people as they realize the importance of that area to them. Now, it's controversial, and the Muslims and Hamas and people like Hezbollah and Iran, they use it as a rallying cry, uh, not even making sense some of the things that they're saying, but they use it as a rallying cry in order to uh, attack uh, Israel. Uh, 
So is the role of the Temple Mount going to change? Is there still going to be this continuing increase of a, a Jewish presence? And is that going to continue as it has over the years? What do you see for the Temple Mount in the future? Well, uh, I will agree with you that there's going to be continuing increase. This past year, we had about maybe a couple of hundred to 1,500 people less than the previous year. Uh, that has to do with holidays and, and other issues. And, for example, when the war broke out for a couple of days, the temple was closed and holidays, etc., like that. I don't see Mr. Netanyahu, to be honest with you, changing the basic uh, government policy of a status quo, as it's called, which means Jews can visit, but they can't pray. Okay, so they pray sort of quietly, uh, but if you, you know, you shake yourself, you get a little bit excited, you're going to be out of there. But obviously, uh, there's been a lot of many pictures coming out of Gaza uh, showing soldiers in front of the Dome of the Rock pictures and talking about the fact, well, if if they called it the Al-Aqsa flood, we're going to call it the Temple Mount War. So there has been a, a, a rise of consciousness and recognition that uh, this war with Hamas was not just over territory, but had uh, even, if I can use the phrase, spiritual aspects to it as well. Uh, religious conflict, a religious war, and people are becoming aware of it. And so that can only increase Jewish presence, but I don't think any major political alteration in policy will happen. I am uh, convinced it's a very long process uh, we're not yet at, uh, as it's called, the tipping point, but it will be impressive. It, it will be recognized and it will be an issue with us all the time. Well, Winky, as always, we appreciate uh, the fact that you come on this program and seek to educate our listeners and let us know what is going on. Anything you'd like to say to our listeners as they look ahead to the new year, at least on our calendar? I know your new year was previous, but on our calendar, as we head together on our relationship, especially between uh, uh, the Christians and the Jewish people in 2024. Well, the, first of all, I wish everybody a, a good new year. Uh, successful and, and one in which people uh, experience life to the fullest and, 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 and gain for themselves and their families. But, but more than that, it's obvious that the opposition, especially in the United States, in the streets and in the academia and nothing like that, on behalf of, of Hamas, on behalf of a free Palestine from the river to the sea, is not just a Jewish-Israeli issue. Uh, there are underlying uh, implications for Christians uh, and for Democrats with a small d, people with liberal uh, or semi-liberal or conservative liberal outlooks. And there's a conflict here that we're on the front line in a certain sense. But uh, I hope everybody listening will pay attention to the fact that there is a threat from people who seem to be illogical, dominating easy to use violence, whether it's vocal violence or whether it's boycotting and other issues that we see over the past three months in the United States specifically. And I hope that everybody will uh, get over those issues uh, uh, for, for the benefit, not only of themselves, but uh, for America as a country uh, with values that I think uh, belong in the forefront of, of humankind. 
Certainly agree and excellent sentiment there. Well, Winky, as always, we appreciate again what you do and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you very much for having me on. And I'll try <laughs> to do my best for you and our listeners. Well, as always, we keep our ear to the ground of what's taking place in Israel and both Israel Madad, David Dolan, and even Ken Timmerman focusing on nations that are involved in Bible prophecy. And that really helps us to narrow down. And when those nations are listening God's word, it really does help us to focus in and watch events that help to determine where we are on God's timeline. Well, last week we talked to R.C. Murrow, and I wanted to have him back. Last week we looked at 2023, the top stories. And R.C., welcome back to the program. Really good to be back with you, Jimmy. Yes, sir. R.C., we're going to look forward now to 2024. We don't make uh, prophecies. We're not predicting anything. But because of our understanding of God's Word, we know the events to follow because it's listed and we get a, an idea of what to follow. We have a more sure word of Bible prophecy, as Peter said, and that's the word of God. So let's take a look. In your, in your mind, R.C., as we're looking forward to 2024, what really is the number one thing that you think as, as we look forward? Yeah, Jimmy, short term, um, since Hamas is, is, is purposely placing Arab civilians in the line of fire to sway world opinion, uh, we're expecting President Biden to continue to pick fights with Prime Minister Netanyahu to satisfy his base, especially after last Saturday's abrupt ending to a phone conversation when Biden announced this conversation is over and hung up the phone on the leader of a sovereign nation and uh, 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 one of our best allies. This could place the U.S. in danger of judgment under Genesis 12.3. Yes, exactly so. Those that bless you, I will bless. Those that curse you, I will curse. And uh, we can't afford, as a nation, to give up on Israel, can we? No, we can't. Uh, we rely heavily on Israel, and, and the Bible tells us that we're right in doing so. So we need to stay very close to Israel and to be their supporter as they, as they face world threats. You know, R.C., with everything that's going on in the world and to kind of sift through all the events, and there are lots of things happening that are not good things in the world, and we don't want to focus on all of those things. We're focusing on the things that help us in Bible prophecy. And one of those, we touched a little bit on it last week, Ken Timmerman did, would be this idea of CBDCs and BRICS nations and all of these events help us. You have waded through this so much with us, explaining it to us. Help us to understand where we are now. Yeah, we first want to focus a little bit on the U.S. dollar, because as of January 2nd, just three days ago, um, Ethiopia, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates have joined the BRICS nations. That the BRICS makes up uh, is made up of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. And and you know, with the combination of these countries, it's now an oil powerhouse. Jimmy, we expect to see continued accelerated trade away from the U.S. dollar. And here's why: Last January 2023, Saudi Arabia agreed to trade oil in Chinese yuan. In May of 2023, the EU Commission hailed the coming end of the petrodollar system of international oil trading in U.S. dollars that underpins the dollar as world reserve currency. In December of 2023, Russia and Iran, who joined the BRICS nations in 2025, have agreed to trade in their own currencies away from the U.S. dollar. 
as of January 2nd, 2024, with Saudi Arabia, the world's largest oil producer, and the United Arab Emirates, the world's third largest oil producer, having officially joined the BRICS, it is no secret that their goal to remove the U.S. dollar as world reserve currency is foremost on their minds. Of all the threats around the world, Jimmy, the threat on the U.S. dollar is the most dangerous to the U.S. way of life. Maybe the catalyst to fulfill the prophecy of Revelation 6, 5, and 6, the third judgment of the tribulation, bringing global hyperinflation. R.C., what happens to America if this happens to the dollar? Well, this has happened in many countries around the world, from Germany to Venezuela to Argentina. When the currency crashes, it just takes more and more currency mm-hmm. to buy goods and services. The, the, the picture of the wheelbarrow full of money in the German Weimar Republic hyperinflation was something that's still fresh in the world's mind after all these years from World War One. So, so hyperinflation is a very big threat. And it can happen suddenly from the drop of a currency. And what about the cashless society? We expect more countries to join the Bahamas, Jamaica, and Nigeria in instituting CBDCs, central bank digital currencies, that could come as a result of a possible surprise financial crisis. Just last Wednesday, Australia announced they would be taking the lead in going cashless. Australia recorded its first decrease in the amount of cash in circulation Mm. since 1966, The Australian cash industry has not rebounded after COVID. And lastly, challenges in accessing cash have become a big problem in regional areas where ATMs or bank branches could be difficult to find. What's interesting here, Jimmy, is that no date has been set for the change to digital, but Australia definitely is taking the lead and and adding to other countries that are Remember this, over 105 nations' central banks are looking into central bank digital currencies as we speak. Wow. And that is setting up for the cashless society and the mark of the beast, correct? Yes. That's correct. These are the these are the prophecies that are casting their shadow before them. Yes. RC, thank you again for keeping us aware. Prophecytracker.org is your website. Folks, I encourage you to go there. And uh, RC, we'll see you as we continue throughout 2024 to examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Thank you, Jimmy. God bless. Well, we have to take a break. And when we come back, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series, he's talking about the first kingdom. Where was the first kingdom? Does that lead to the second kingdom? We'll discuss that when we come back right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, first program of the year. We're right out of the box. We're looking forward to events that could happen in 2024. And using God's word really helps us to understand a perfect way to do that. Not prophesying, no predictions, just understanding how God's plan is going to unfold. And uh, people really should go to a, a website where it can help them. Well, Jimmy, we'd love for them to go to our website, prophecytoday.com. We have a bookstore. We have all kinds of study materials, CDs, DVDs, books, digital books, anything that you need to help you study Bible prophecy, make it come alive to you, and help you in your walk. Yes, and uh, folks, if you do go there, continue praying for us and consider donating to our ministry. We would really appreciate that. 
Well, the Legacy Series is a series that we have with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, and we're going to continue a very important study on the future kingdom, when Jesus Christ will rule and reign from the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. We need to go back to the first kingdom that the Lord set up some 6,000 years ago in the Garden of Eden. The Lord put Adam and Eve in charge of that kingdom. We need to show you how this all came together and, in fact, trace from that first kingdom to the satanic kingdom that would be set up by the great-grandson of Noah, a man called Nimrod. We need to start in Genesis chapter 2, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. Now go back to chapter 2, and there the Lord God is going to place Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Before he does that, before he brings Eve into existence, he has Adam go into the garden. And then he brings all the animals into the garden. This is chapter 2. And he allows Adam to name all the animals. Where do you think the animals got their names from? Adam named all the animals. You see, God was trying to show Adam his glory. His glory is made manifest in his creation. He showed him the stars, for example. Psalm 19, the heavens declare my glory. He said four words, four words to bring stars and the galaxies out there into existence. And the stars also. He had put the sun up there. He had put the moon up there. And it's like he's walking away. This is the fourth day of creation. All of a sudden he's, oh yeah, and the stars also. And majestically, the sky shows the glory. Now, Adam is able to see that, but he also wants him to see the creativeness in the animals that he brings into existence. I don't know what it would have been like. I would have loved to have been there with Adam in that garden at that time. He would have been, you know, standing there in the garden, and the Lord's going to bring all the animals in. And he's so excited about this that God's given him to do. And all of a sudden, he looks out, and down the aisle comes this great, big, wide big old hipped type of animal. And Adam looks up and says, mm, I think that I will call that a hippopotamus. Big hips, you know. Anyway, he comes down the aisle. And then all of a sudden, God said, well, no, that's not bad. And God said, let me show you this one. And he puts a little thing on, you know, four little legs, little tentacles coming around. Adam says, hmm, I think that I will call that an ant. All of a sudden, this creature coming along with a long snout walks up, sticks a long tongue out, eats the ant, and he says, hmm, that's an anteater. And, it, it, you know, so he names all these animals. Why does he do it? Because he's trying to show Adam, in everything I've created thus far, you have no helpmate. That's chapter 2 of the book of Genesis, what it says. Did you find a helpmate, Adam? No. Okay, I'm going to make you one. So he pulls a rib out of Adam and he makes woman. And there he then joins them together. And they become the leaders of this kingdom that the Lord has put in place. But where are they headquartered? In the Garden of Eden. Verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden before time in Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant in the sight of every good, for good food and the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And so we have established now the pattern and then we have the place where this kingdom is going to be set up and operating. Well, we know the story in chapter 3, what happens in chapter 3. 
Satan having fallen from uh, the relationship he had with the Lord. And most likely, let me just throw this into your computer. Why did Satan rebel? I would suggest maybe it might be because of the fact that when the Lord God created the earth, just before that, he created angels. And that would be based upon the fact of the book of Job chapter 38, verse 4 says, Where were you, Job, when I created the earth? And then in verse 7, it says, when the angels, sons of God, and the morning stars sang praise when he created the earth. So someplace in Genesis chapter 1, between verse 1, halfway through, and the end of verse 1, he creates angels. He created the heavens, created angels, and then he brings into existence the earth, and the angels sang for joy about what would happen. Now, remember, I tell you, everything has to be created in the six 24-hour days. That's what Exodus chapter 20, verse 11 says. He did that, everything created, in six 24-hour days. Lucifer, if you look at chapter 28 of the book of Ezekiel, was made the most prominent of all the angels that were created. He had a place of prominence. The Lord put him there himself. And then I believe when he brought man into existence... And on the sixth day of creation, Lucifer's watching and he sees that Adam and Eve are given dominion over all of creation. And so Lucifer is kind of displaced from his position of power and prominence. And so he rebels. Chapter 3, we see him slip into the garden. And there he has a conversation with Eve. And through confusing her, he brings her to a place where she will commit sin. And sin comes in, and now that dominion that had been given to Adam and Eve has slipped away from them. We continue on. We go through chapter 4, the story of Cain and Abel, chapter 5, a genealogy in the book of Genesis, chapters 6, 7, and 8, Noah and the flood. The flood is over. All of humankind has been wiped out except for eight souls because of their relationship with angelic creatures as well. We come to chapter 9, the Lord appears to Noah, tells him to be fruitful, multiply, and repeople the earth. Chapter 10, they start doing that. Go to chapter 10 just a moment. Let me show you now how, again, Satan is going to be actively involved in what's going to happen. Chapter 10 of the book of Genesis is the record of uh, Adam excuse me, of Noah and his three sons doing exactly what the Lord said to do, be fruitful, multiply, and repeople the earth. You'll remember that Ham had a son. His name was Cush. Cush had a son. His name was Nimrod. That's here in verse 8 of chapter 10. And Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. Verse 10. Now notice this. And the beginning of his kingdom, the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom was Babel on the shores of the Euphrates River. In the plains of Shinar, it says here. That's in Mesopotamia, the two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates. On the plains of Shinar, which is modern-day Iraq, Babylon is established, and that is the beginning of the kingdom for Nimrod. What did he do? Chapter 11, verse 4 says, He built a great city in the face of Jehovah God, who said, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. That was his command to Noah and his three sons. But Nimrod, great-grandson of Noah, says, In your face, God, I'm going to establish my kingdom. And so Satan comes along, gets inside and controlling Nimrod, has him go against God and establishes a kingdom 
in contradiction to Lord, the Lord's plan for the kingdom. We could go on and we could trace throughout the entire Bible how satanic rulers have controlled kingdoms of the world. The kingdoms, of course, of the Gentile world, uh, the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, the Roman Empire, controlled by satanically controlled men in the leadership roles of these different kingdoms. And ultimately, the Lord's going to bring down the Gentile world powers. One of the reasons for the tribulation period is to bring an end to Gentile world powers. It says in the book of Luke chapter 21 and verse 24, And Jerusalem shall be trodden down until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. The times of the Gentiles would be that period of time when the Gentile world powers are ruling over this earth from uh, during that seven-year tribulation period. So we could trace through the satanic kingdoms that have been put in place. In fact, when Jesus was tempted by Satan, he offered him, Satan offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world. That means he's the king. He's the ruler. He's in charge of this world today under, of course, the sovereignty of Almighty God. Well, that's the plan for the kingdom that the Lord put in place, the pattern and the place where it's supposed to be headquartered. Go with me over to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and let me show you now the promise, God's promise to a people, God's kingdom people. Who is it going to be that will receive this kingdom? Who is it going to be that will be the recipient of God's promise to give a kingdom uh, to this world? The book of 2 Samuel chapter 7 is the record of the Davidic covenant. It's a covenant made with King David for the purpose of giving him a promise that there would be a temple in the city of Jerusalem and one of his descendants would rule and reign from the throne in that temple. In chapter 5 of 2 Samuel, uh, David, king of all of Israel, having served as king of only Judah for seven years in Hebron, and then the other tribal leaders make him king of all of Israel. He comes and selects a neutral city. He selects a Jebusite stronghold between Benjamin and Judah. It's a place called Jerusalem, was owned by the Jebusites. His mighty men took over and captured it. In chapter 5, it becomes the political capital of the Jewish people. That was 3,000 years ago. In chapter 6, he brings the Ark of the Covenant that had been away from the Jewish people for over 350 years. He brings that into uh, Jerusalem and he sets up the spiritual capital for the Jewish people in the city of Jerusalem. He wants to build a permanent worship center. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant was traveling, of course, and that was the transportable worship center when they would put up the tabernacle. Paul, uh, uh, John, excuse me, David puts up a, a, a tabernacle in Jerusalem for the purpose of housing the tabernacle. And then he decides he would like to build a permanent worship center, a temple. Because of sin, he's not allowed to do that. But the Lord comes and lets King David know in one of the four covenants, the promises that are unconditional given to the Jewish people, that this would happen one day. Chapter 7, 2 Samuel verse 10. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, and they, they, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And so he's committing to King David, I'm going to put up a permanent place of worship, and that, as we know, would be the city of Jerusalem. He talks about the first installment of this promise being taken care of by his son Solomon. 
Look here in verse 12. And when the day, thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which will proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom, referring to Solomon, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It's going to be a kingdom forever that will come from the bowels of King David through his son Solomon, who fulfills the first installment of it. Look at verse 16. Thy house and thy kingdom shall be established forever. The future kingdom that Jesus Christ rules and reigns from on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem is going to be the fulfillment of Bible prophecy, but also the fulfillment of the promise that God made to King David 3,000 years ago. The Davidic covenant cannot be broken or unfulfilled. God made that promise, and a promise-keeping God also gives you and me the assurance that he will keep his promises to us of everlasting life through his Son, Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord for these promises. Next week, we'll continue our study on the future kingdom when Jesus Christ will rule and reign for a thousand years here on the earth. This is a very important study, especially in light of the fact that many today believe that kingdom is already in place. A wrong understanding of the kingdom can be very destructive as we look at what God is doing today and what God will do in the future. Please don't miss this study. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. We're going to have to take a break, and when we come back, we'll take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Pakistan and Afghanistan are playing hot potato with over a million Afghans. Two months ago, Pakistan began deporting undocumented Afghan foreigners. But even those born in Pakistan or with special immigration visas are also caught in the mix. So far, 450,000 Afghans living in Pakistan have been stranded on the Afghanistan border. Nehemiah with FMI says Afghan Christians are no exception. We have a very large mystery among Afghan nationals from years and years. And many of FMI's Muslim background believers are church planters, are dual nationals who were born in Afghanistan or maybe their parents were Afghanis, but they are living in Pakistan or they were born in Pakistan. And now they are struggling with the situation as well. Pray courage for displaced Afghan believers. And the American dream drives many in the United States to rise above the station they were born into. A similar phenomenon is underway in Honduras, where Victorious Life helps people find spiritual and economic freedom in Christ. Built on similar principles, Victoria's Life and Farms International are teaming up to do more for the Lord in Honduras. Scott Clifton with Farm says, They have begun to fill out an application and we're really looking forward to seeing how that develops over the year 2024. Farms International combines Christian stewardship with interest-free loans to help people work their way out of poverty while supporting the local church. This approach could work well with a Victorious Life initiative. Help from believers like you make the work possible. The details in the full story at missionnews.org. When someone gives, that money is used to fund everything that Farms does. 
Thanks for listening to Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. We are listener supported by people just like you. So by giving to Mission Network News, you enable us to keep the stories of God's kingdom coming. Look for links at missionnews.org. I'm Ruth Kramer. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. And along with Rick, we have been looking at current events in the light of God's prophetic word. And Rick, you know, I know that as people listen to our program and they follow the events that we follow, we're going to be following a lot of the same events that we followed in 2023. And as we look forward, we're looking at some of the same and making, you know, some sort of a uh, statement about what we expect to see in 2024. And really, we do that because we're looking at God's Word. That's right, Jimmy. And if you continue to look at it, you see these situations that are taking place in the world. Many of the conflicts that we continue to report on, we continue to report on Russia and Ukraine. We continue to report on the war between Israel and Hamas. Well, these things have been happening over the years, and we have seen them coming, and we've reported that these things may be happening, and then all of a sudden, you know, these conflicts take place. And these things are right out of the pages of Bible prophecy, things that are happening that are setting the stage like no other time in history for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. You know, when we look at, uh, we talked about the keys to Bible prophecy. Uh, One of those keys is that there is a timeline, as it's laid out in God's Word, beginning the next main event on God's calendar uh, of timelines of events would be the rapture of the church. Um, You know, and I, I, I told R.C., I'm looking forward to Uh, the end of 2024, but I do think that, and I make the prediction, Rick, that, you know, the rapture of the church is going to happen in 2024. And if it doesn't happen in 2024, guess what? As we begin 2025, I will say that the rapture of the church is going to happen that year. But the (laughs) reason I can say that is because we are seeing events that are leading to events that will unfold during the tribulation period. Remember, That seven-year period of time, 21 judgments, all designed to bring judgment on the earth. And we're starting to see the beginning of at least the formation of those events to unfold. And are on that timeline after the rapture of the church. And so as we read scripture, as we take a look at it, you know, Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, he said, we have a more sure word of prophecy that helps us to understand. We don't follow cunningly devised fables. We're not chasing after, uh, you know, and maybe there are some people that chase after uh, these far-fetched prophecies, but we're sticking true to the word of God to help us to, for the word to be a light for us in a dark world. And You know, each week it seems like we're covering events that are showing us that we're in a dark world. And it's the Word of God that gives us hope, that sheds light in what we are supposed to be doing in these last days. Certainly is, Jimmy. And the the Word of God and the the prophecy that's in the Bible helps to motivate us and helps us to be pure, prepared, and productive as we go forward. One of the things I noticed from the program today, and obviously it's something that we talk about often, but the alliance between Russia and 
and Iran. And Ken Timmerman talked about this a little bit on the program, but it continues to go grow stronger and it continues to make each side kind of exponentially stronger. And this is something that plays right into Bible prophecy, one of those events that's going to occur, we believe, after the rapture of the church. And this is letting us know where we stand on God's timeline. Ezekiel 38, I believe that that is the second seal, Revelation chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, that talk about those sealed judgments that are going to be opened. And I believe that man riding a, a red horse that represents war is representing the war of Gog and Magog. That's Ezekiel 38, uh, which in that chapter, it's talking about Russia and Iran, uh, Magog and Persia. Of course, you combine the nations of Daniel 11, Psalm 83. These are all the nations that are involved in that alignment of nations that you talk about, Rick. And uh, each day we keep seeing more and more Israel's reaching out, you know, striking in Lebanon now. And the opinion of the world has changed against Israel that uh, we are seeing events take place like we haven't seen since the days of World War II when Adolf Hitler was trying to wipe out the Jews. So, Rick, yeah, this is very important information, and using God's Word helps us to navigate through these days. Certainly does, Jimmy. And then at the end of Dave Dolan's segment, he talked about his 50th anniversary, his rebirth day, his 50th anniversary of him being saved, and he talked about what we need to do to be saved, to be prepared for what is going to take place in the future, and that's what this program is all about, isn't it? Yes. Uh, We try to keep folks aware using God's Word. Again, we're not trying to go outside. We're just trying to use God's Word and and, uh, understand why it's there. Um, His Word over a third of it is pertaining to prophetic events in the in the future. The reason biblical prophecy is to be studied and will be to our benefit to do so is because it did not come as uh, to its written form by the will of man, but by holy men of God wrote as the Holy Spirit inspired, breathed into them that they were to write these words. The key to understanding the whole of God's prophetic word is found in verse 20 of Second Peter chapter 1, when it talks about no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. These words are there. They're true. The prophecies that have already been fulfilled give us the confidence to know that these prophecies in the future are going to come to be. And we need to keep our eyes and understand as we read, our lives need to be prepared, like you said, Rick, to be pure and productive in the days in which we're living. Well, I sure appreciate your thought process, Rick, as we uh, have been taught by our father who studied the word of God and you know, the thought process of being able to pick stories for us to focus on and for everyone to focus on to help edify and educate the body of Christ. That's right, Jimmy. That's what our goal is here on the program, and that's what we look forward to doing every week. You know, uh, Rick, as I said, as we started the program, 2024 is a perfect time for the rapture of the church to take place with all that's happening around the world. We can't help but say that the rapture is an imminent event and could happen 
within the next few moments because we are seeing events that are setting up for future events on God's timeline, which all happen after the rapture of the church. With all those things that we've been looking at, it's easy for us to say as we await the rapture of the church, let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is a listener-supported production of Shofar Communications in Chattanooga, Tennessee.